Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a particular form of uh, convergence. Uh, I want to talk about the convergence of uh, the tradition that's been handed down to us, our personal practice, and scholarship. Now, I do, uh, I do quite a lot of teaching, and uh, occasionally, as I'm passing on the teachings to the best of my understanding, having you know, studied the teachings, having read a lot about them, having explored them in my own practice, I sometimes don't feel entirely happy about what I'm passing on. And sometimes I think it's not me. It's not just me. It's not me not understanding this properly. It, it, and it's not even just the other teachers uh, whose books and whose teachings I'm, I'm exploring. Sometimes I think it's actually the tradition itself has got a bit messed up. And this is what I'm calling um, bugs in the source code of, of the Dharma. And I'm interested in how, uh, as our practice goes deeper, and as we bring in scholarship, we can help to uh, clarify what the Dharma actually is, what the Buddha's instructions actually were. Now, uh, someone asked me the other day, is this fundamentalism? Am I advocating a fundamentalist approach? And I don't think I am, because fundamentalism is saying, uh, there's a truth, and I have it. Uh, there is one correct text, and it's my text. And what I'm saying is that um, I don't know what the truth is, but I'd like to find it. And I've got lots of texts, and I don't entirely trust any of them. So it's really quite the, the opposite of uh, fundamentalism. I'm advocating not clinging to uh, particular teachings. I'm advocating not clinging to particular formulations. I'm talking about opening a space of uncertainty uh, in, in, into which uh, perhaps a deeper understanding can arise. Now, I'm not saying that you can just make shit up, okay? <laughs> and uh, I hope that will become clear as I uh, go through the talk. Also, another reason why I, 
I would say that I'm not being fundamentalist is I don't dismiss uh, innovation. I'm not arguing against innovation. I'm not saying that there's one original formulation of the teachings and that formulation is correct and everything that came after that is, is incorrect. There's a lot of wonderful stuff that's evolved in this tradition over the last uh, 2,500 years. Uh, if the Dharma is uh, code, then it's, uh, it's open source code and we're free to, uh, to develop new models. But the interesting thing is that I think often new models emerge because the old models aren't good enough. If you look at the emergence of the, the Mahayana, for example, uh, I think that came into being because the earlier models that had been developed had become kind of stale and clogged and not so useful anymore. Now, I, I hasten to say that this is just a, a metaphor talking about the Dharma as uh, source code. But in a way, it's interesting, we are kind of running an upgrade on uh, the mind's operating system. And I, I should add that I know absolutely nothing whatsoever about uh, coding. So if you've come here to learn anything about that, I'm, I apologize. Um, we all have this uh, original human conscious uh, evolved operating system and it's great and it's wonderful and it's helped us to survive and to get this far but there are serious limitations uh, in that uh, operating system as far as uh, our human happiness and human thriving are concerned and back in the you know the axial age two and a half thousand years ago uh, this was being recognized just I'm just going to you know drop in a few words you know the invention of the plow the the iron plow uh, the efficiencies that that brought to agriculture, the creation of wealth, the development of a leisured class of people who were no longer concerned with survival and who were able to sort of sit back and talk with each other and say, well, you know, what's life all about? And what they were doing in a way was uh, saying, you know, we've got to this, this point, but, you know, we see a lot of strife around about us in the world. We see a lot of, you know, meaninglessness. Uh, how do we actually live? And, and all these philosophers, uh, Confucius, uh, Lao Tse, uh, Socrates, Plato, the Buddha, they were all developing, in a way, new software packages uh, so that we can you know, change uh, our consciousness. There's just a little interesting thing there, here that connects with my, uh, with my topic. Uh, I, I bet almost everybody here is aware of uh, the Buddha's biography and the role of the four sites in his going forth from the, the household life, yeah? Everyone's aware of those. He's supposed to have gone forth from his palace and uh, seen uh, an old man, a sick man, a dying man, and a holy man. And this precipitated a spiritual crisis and took him uh, uh, you know, out into the forest to, to explore meditation. Uh, we all know this, but it's in a thousand books. It's not in the original scriptures. It's not in the, in the suttas really interesting. The Buddha does tell the story about the four sites, but it's a story about somebody else. And yet we all know this. We all believe it. It's in so many books. And I find this kind of interesting that the commentarial tradition, by which I mean basically you know, everything post the suttas, the commentarial tradition is so embedded in our minds that we can't actually see sometimes what's in the original teachings. This is what the Buddha said about why he went on his spiritual quest. This axial age, the invention of the iron axe, the, the iron plough, um, the development of immense amounts of wealth compared to what had been existed before, it prompted a lot of striving. There was a lot of kings fighting over who was going to control this wealth. The Buddha was freaked out by this. 
He was completely freaked out by the violence and the strife that he saw in the world round about him. I find this really touching, this statement here of the Buddhist. I find this really touching and much more moving than him going out with this with a charioteer and seeing an old man and a sick man, etc. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we can't just download um, uh, the Dharma into our brains, unfortunately. Uh, we have to... Uh, you know, install it almost line by line. We have to you know, install it and run it. It's a lifelong process. Yeah? So I'm going to talk about two sources of uh, bugs. Obsessive commentarial disorder, OCD, and uh, <laughs> what someone has termed the dull monk in the third row. OCD is essentially a sort of software bloat, which perhaps technically isn't a sort of bug, but it does make software more difficult to use. So... Um, I'm not putting this up here so you can read it. I'm putting it up here so you can see how unreadable it is. This is an extract from the uh, Visuddhimagga, which is a 5th century uh, commentary. Uh, obsessive commentarial disorder is the tendency for commentators to elab elaborately, well, to, to endlessly elaborate and find all these you know, correspondences and this matches up with that, etc., etc., to the point where everything becomes kind of you know, unusable. And sometimes these commentaries uh, substantially contradict the suttas. I'm going to give you uh, at least one example of that later. Um, I want to just mention a little bit about practice here and the role of practice. Uh, I was talking to Mikey at the beginning of the conference, actually just before the conference began, and we were talking about how it is that sometimes you can be looking at the teachings, the, you know, the suttas, and they seem like gobbledygook. And then your practice hits a, a somewhat deeper level and it all kind of you know, falls into place. And the, the, the point here I'm trying to make is that without uh, a basis of practice, the Dharma can be kind of incomprehensible. And uh, one interesting thing is that I think a lot of these commentators, including uh, our beloved Buddha Gosa, who wrote the Vasudhimaga in the fifth century, they didn't meditate. They grew up they were practicing or they were living in a culture in which meditation had been uh, abandoned probably some centuries before. Vince talked about how, in, in his talk, uh, the, very, the very first talk, I think, uh, how in the Buddhist tradition, historically, meditation has not been emphasized. It was emphasized by the Buddha, but it wasn't emphasized uh, uh, post-Buddha, not until the 20th century. Here's one of the reasons why. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's introduction to the uh, the Visuddhimagga. Uh, take a look at what was going on in Sri Lanka. Okay, in just keywords, invaders, uh, famine, invasion, king's exile. Bhikkhu is having to actually evacuate the monasteries, even evacuate Sri Lanka and go to India. And then, down at the bottom, what I've highlighted, in the, the Mahavihara, the great monastery, the bhikkhus decide that it's all they can do to pass on the text from generation to generation. They can't actually meditate, okay? It's, it's too challenging to, to do that. They're just going to pass on the text. This is uh, more than 500 years before uh, Buddhaghosa wrote his commentary. It's quite possible that there was no meditation going on for half a millennium before he wrote his commentary. I want to give you an example uh, that I've noticed of a, a contradiction. Uh, this is a teaching which many of you will know, three forms of, of dukkha or of suffering, actual pain, physical pain, psychic pain, uh, the suffering that comes about by change, you know, you're happy now, but just, you know, wait 10 minutes. Uh, and then there's this uh, kind of global thing at the end. It's like conditioned existence is unsatisfactory, uh, which seems to kind of reduplicate 
all the rest of them. So this is standard commentarial presentation. They're always in this order. It builds up to this global form of suffering. If you look in the original sutta where the Buddha talks about these forms of suffering, they're in a different order. And it no longer makes any sense to look at them in that way. You've got pain. You've got this Sankara Dukkata, which was you know, this, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. It's in the middle now. And then you've got suffering that results from uh, pleasure ending, pleasure that you're attached to. So this doesn't make so much sense anymore. Why put the global thing right in the middle of the list? Well, if you can just let go of what you, what you know from the commentaries, first of all, and create a kind of open space and let the teaching resonate with you on the basis of your practice and your understanding of the tradition and kind of you know, allow creative connections to develop. You can think about this word in the middle, sankara. It doesn't have to mean the conditioned, you know, everything that's conditioned. It can mean very simply uh, constructed. Yeah? It can mean very simply constructed pain. Yeah? I think this makes a little bit more sense. Just take a look at the first two of them. You've got initial pain and then you've got constructed pain. Does that remind you of any other teachings? How many people here are familiar with the two arrows? The very famous teaching of the Buddhas. Ah, okay, so this kind of matches up with the two arrows. And then you've got uh, the suffering of change. Now, uh, this is uh, the second arrow in a way. The constructed suffering is where we're inflicting uh, pain upon ourselves. We have an initial experience of pain, and then we go, ah, oh, this shouldn't be happening to me. This is really terrible. This is going to keep going on forever and ever. It's going to get worse and worse. Yeah? So that's constructed pain. And then we've got uh, pain which results from clinging. There's another sutta in which the Buddha, well, the, the, the sutta in which the, the, the presentation of the two arrows is found actually contains a third form of suffering that the Buddha talked about. It tends to get ignored. Everyone talks about the two arrows. There's no image to do with the third one. Um, but it's in there. The Buddha talks about where a person does not discern any escape from painful feeling aside from sensual pleasure. So we attach to sensual pleasure, but then the sensual pleasure ends and we experience the pain. Yeah? So these match up perfectly. So this seems like, you know, it's kind of a minor bug, perhaps, in the, in the suttas. But it's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the commentators have brought in this suffering of conditioned existence, this kind of global thing, which makes something that actually was originally intended to be quite concrete and very experiential and makes it more kind of you know, global and, uh, and existential. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the, the dull monk in the uh, third row. Uh, this is a, a term which was devised by uh, an English Buddhist uh, author and creative writing teacher uh, called Will Buckingham. And uh, uh, in introduction to, to talking about this, I wonder how many people here have ever you know, lectured at a university for you know, a semester or, or more, yeah? Okay, or, or even a high school, yeah? Uh, f a few people. Um, isn't it utterly painful when you see your students' lecture notes? <laughs> it's, it's one of the most painful things. You're presenting this, these kind of you know, these elegant connections and bringing all these different things and all these different factors flow together to bring you know, what we see in the world in front of us. And what you end up with in your students' lecture notes is these you know, sketchy bullet points with all the connections missing between things, all the, the subtlety and the nuance is missing. And this is basically what Will is talking about when he's talking about the, the dull monk in the third row. 
He says to imagine the Buddha teaching, and he's you know, supremely intelligent, and he's relaxed, and he's on good form, and he's telling jokes, and his discourse is full of you know, witty asides and double entendres, and then these incredible moments of profundity. You know? And most people are sitting there just like, wow, man, this is incredible. This is life-changing. And in the third row, there's this dull monk who's just, uh, you know, he likes lists. And he likes making lists of things to make sure that nobody forgets the, the main key points. And all of the connections between things get lost. You just end up with a bunch of bullet points. Um, and so what happens is that the, the dynamic becomes static, where the Buddha's talking about a dynamic. This flows to this, this flows to this. All these factors come together to produce what we see in front of us. It becomes this kind of static list. Bringing in a little bit of scholarship here now, there's a uh, a really interesting book by Sue Hamilton, who I think is uh, English, and she's a scholar. She wrote a book called uh, Early Buddhism, A New Approach. And uh, she talks about the five skandhas, which are usually, almost always explained in terms of there are these five different aspects of ourselves, and we can break up the idea of a self. We can lose the idea of a self by realizing that there's these five different aspects of ourselves. Uh, I'm not going to go into the book at all. You're you know, free to look it up. What she, talks, what she goes into in the book is how the five skandhas are actually the mechanism of our experience. It's the mechanism by which we produce suffering for ourselves. Quite fascinating. With that in mind, I started looking at some other teachings that I, I found a little unsatisfactory. Um, so there's the four foundations of mindfulness. I've always felt a little kind of weird about the four foundations of mindfulness. If you read lots of different... Uh, explanations of the four foundations, they're all different from each other, especially the last two, mind and dhammas. It's kind of confusing. Uh, most often mind is rendered as being, well, mind, chitta is rendered as being mind, and dharmas are, are usually explained as being mental states. Yeah? But the trouble is that if you look at the suttas, the, the mind talks about mental states. It talks about knowing whether the mind has craving, knowing whether the mind has aversion, for example. So it's a little strange. That doesn't really quite work. What, what is this? What's this about? Well, um, another way of looking at this, if you think about this as a dynamic, how, how could this actually work? Well, first of all, we've got the body, which is the, the, the root of our experience of everything. The body in Buddhism is not just you know, our physical form, but it's actually our contact with the world. It's where we interact uh, with everything else through our, through our senses. So we have physical experiences. On the basic basis of those uh, experiences, which include you know, vision, we see something, we perceive it as being a threat, like someone holds up a, a two-minute warning uh, for me, and uh, I suddenly realize there's a threat. I have this little twist in my gut. That's a feeling. That's a Vedana. Okay? Uh, my mind can respond to that in many ways. I can go into panic mode, yeah? uh, or I can not. I can just decide to stay with the feeling. Okay? Um, dhammas, what are dhammas? If you look at uh, the Buddhist presentation of the Dhammas, it's actually kind of confusing. But there's two particular elements in there. I'm going to come back to why they're uh, important in a moment. Uh, the Buddha talks about uh, the five hindrances, which are reactive ways of uh, responding to uh, unpleasant or unpleasant mental, uh, uh, unpleasant or pleasant uh, feelings. Uh, or he also talks about the seven bodhyangas, which are creative ways of responding to these uh, feelings, pleasant or unpleasant. 
So the dhammas are actually kind of recursive. The Buddha's talking about how you can uh, deal with your experience. So um, Bhikkhu Sujato, another of my favorite uh, scholars, refers to uh, the Satipatthana Sutta as being the Piltdown Sutta. Piltdown Man, if you're not aware of him, was a fake fossil uh, created by somebody, I think, I can't remember his name, Charles something, uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and uh, Bhikkhu Sujato points out that the uh, Satipatthana Sutta is so cobbled together that it's effectively a sort of a fake sutta. Again, you don't need to uh, you know, read this. You can't possibly read it. But down at uh, what Bhikkhu Sujato did was he took seven different versions. There are seven different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta. And he lined them all up side by side and looked at what's in common. So when you look at the Dhammas, you've got hindrances and uh, the enlightenment factors. So this is a, another where, place where scholarship can actually help clarify things for us uh, by uh, stripping away what has been added. Because the Satipatthana Sutta is the end result of two things. You've got the dull monk in the third row who's turning things into static lists. And then you've got the obsessive commentators who are saying, hey, look, here's something about the, the body. Let's throw in everything we know about the body. Here's something about feelings, and here's something about, about dhammas. Let's just chuck everything in there that we think might be relevant, because that's going to be helpful, yeah? Except it doesn't. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but go online and look for uh, an image of Microsoft Word with all the toolbars enlarged. It's amazing. It covers the entire screen. You can't see anything. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up very quickly. Um, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. Um, I'm suggesting that we don't cling to particular understandings of the Dharma that we have. I'm suggesting that we be honest with ourselves. You know, when you get this kind of, uh-huh, what? This doesn't seem to make sense, that we actually stay with that and not immediately say, oh, well, I'm going to grasp after this particular explanation. I mean, sure, we have to adopt some kind of explanation. We're trying to practice. We're trying to pass things on uh, if we're uh, teachers. But maintain that sense of uh, lightness around about the teachings so that we're not clinging to them. I suggest also that we'd be open to scholarship because a lot of Buddhists tend to be uh, quite dismissive of uh, scholars. Some scholars are not Buddhists and do a fantastic job of interpreting the Dharma. Some are not Buddhists and do a terrible job of interpreting the Dharma. You read them and you think they just don't know anything. Um, increasingly, there are more and more uh, scholars who are Buddhists, who are steeped in practice, who have a deep understanding of the Buddha, and who can help us as practitioners to have a deeper understanding. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we let the confluence of practice and tradition and scholarship uh, all come together in order to, to uh, deepen our understanding of the Dharma, so that we can perhaps end up with a clearer, uh, leaner set of teachings or, or source code, uh, so that we can uh, liberate ourselves from suffering and so that we can help liberate others from suffering as well. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. 
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.